0: Hello, today is November 30th, 2017. Good afternoon to those of you on the West Coast and good evening to you, to those of you back East. I am in, in for Neil Garfield as always on the West Coast version of the Neil Gar- Garfield Show. I'm broadcasting live from Southern California. The West Coast Foreclosure Show is typically broadcast on the first and third Thursday of each month. And here we are with a fifth Thursday in the month of November. And while we do focus on West Coast developments, we sometimes will address other areas of the country. And so we will do today, touching on topics involving the West Coast, but also some Arkansas bankruptcy court as it happens. And, of course, Neil Garfield will continue to broadcast his regular show on alternate days. Those, those days will always be on Thursday, as regular listeners know. This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, today, investigator Bill Padillo will join me again, and we'll be discussing several topics, but the, the topic we're going to start off with, and which Bill has some real good intel on, is it involves an arkansas bankruptcy court decision and it is a, it is a decision that truly baffles the mind what happened here is that this court has ruled for the lenders and it did so notwithstanding the fact that wells fargo had a power of attorney supposedly ostensibly reportedly An endorsement by a WAMU officer, that's the good old Washington Mutual, swallowed by Wells Fargo, rather swallowed by Chase some years ago. Uh, But the the officer executing the endorsement was no longer an officer. And the entity for whom the endorsement was presented, and this was one Joyce Babin, the entity had actually dissolved five years previous to her endorsement. Plus, there was no attorney of fact that was spelled out with the endorsement showing how it came to be on the note. In other words, how the attorney, in fact, was in fact associated with the note. So this is one of these typical scenarios that we've seen all too often, and it brings to mind the Ninth Circuit rulings here in California that say these kinds of deficiencies and these kinds of frankly open violations make the underlying transactions merely voidable, not void. So tell us more about this case. It's uh, the case against Schaefer versus Wells Fargo. If you can weigh in on that bill would be appreciated.
1: Yeah, no problem. Good to be on the show again as usual, Charles. Um, yeah, Excellent. this one is uh, <laughs> this one's probably uh, one of the most um, astonishing uh decisions I've I've ever read. Um when I when I posted the initial article, uh I decided to go back into the docket and I pulled down the hearing transcript that occurred in uh, late 2015 and read through the actual testimony of the Wells Fargo witness and I'll tell you I mean it reads like an episode of uh, Abbott and Costello who's on first. it's 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 one of these cases that uh, it's an adversary case, obviously, in bankruptcy where Wells Fargo produced a proof of claim that they were the owner, investor, and owner of uh, the subject note. Well, here we have the witness for Wells Fargo take the stand, and not only does the witness describe uh, four different chains of title, But the witness admits in the testimony that Wells Fargo is not only not the owner and the investor of the note, which should have probably ended that proceeding right then and there, um, but admits that the original uh, lender, Great Western, had sold it to Fannie Mae, and Fannie Mae had been the owner of the loan ever since 2005. Well, it goes on in the testimony, and this witness gets twisted around so many times and so many different contradictions and everything. But what I had originally read in the order by the court is that the endorsement was placed on this note by Wells Fargo by virtue of a power of attorney granted to Wells from J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, it comes to be in the testimony uh, when, when questioned uh, emphatically about that endorsement that appears on the note. Uh, the, the testimony is uh, not only was the note endorsed in 2013, but the Wells Fargo witnesses or witness states that the the endorsement was placed on there by J.P. Morgan Chase. Okay, so it wasn't apparently Wells Fargo that did the endorsement; it was J.P. Morgan Chase, and that means or plays into what I've been saying all along is that uh these these notes that chase claims to have acquired through the f d i c and wamu um they are endorsing these after the fact and uh and now we have testimony um you know by a witness of wells fargo that that says yes j p morgan chase put that put that endorsement on the note but what which is also real interesting about this is that The witness also says that the original note has been in Wells Fargo's custody and control since 2007 all the way up until the present moment of this hearing, and that the only time that that note had left the vault in Wells Fargo's custody in Minneapolis was when it was sent to the law firm in preparation for this particular litigation. Well, how in the world... Does J.P. Morgan Chase apply an endorsement upon an original note, albeit of a officer of WAMU in 2013, uh, which is a forgery in and of itself? But how in the world does J.P. Morgan Chase end up endorsing that note if it's been in Wells Fargo's custody the whole time? So you read this thing, and there's a lot of information that is useful. Um, and I could probably spend about two hours talking about all the nuggets that are inside this testimony. But this witness even goes as far as to say that the records that it, that this witness reviewed, the servicing platform records, are not all that accurate, that they may not have been updated, and that it's hard to uh, determine sometimes. It's not easy to determine who owns the loans or who owns whatnot. I mean, it's just a treasure trove of just uh, incriminating uh, inconsistent testimony.
0: In other words, all those representations were made on the record during a bankruptcy proceeding. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes. This witness takes the stand, and right there in front of the judge, um, not only – does the witness admit that Wells Fargo is not the owner and that's the whole point of the adversary is that they filed the proof of claim as the owner not only do they admit that Wells Fargo is not the owner but in its original story before the admission is that that they've yeah. never been the owner they say we acquired it on February in February of 2013 we bought this from JP Morgan Chase so right there they're saying that they just bought stolen goods, essentially, from J.P. Morgan Chase, <laughs> uh, and that's they're saying that that's how they acquired it. Before changing the story and admitting that that you know it had been sold to Fannie years and years you know prior to. Um, it's just absolutely amazing how this witness can sit there and right in front of this judge and admit, when asked, "Listen, the testimony by Lita Hutchinson and the deposition, read it out loud." She admits that she was not an assistant vice president of Washington Mutual. She left that position in May of 2006. She wasn't working there, obviously, at Washington Mutual because it failed in 08. And yet the judge in the ultimate ruling comes out and says, well, the the, the endorsement by the WAMU officer is valid because she worked there in 2013. I mean, how the judge even came up, with that equation, when the witness even said there's no way it would be an impossibility for Lita Hutchinson to have endorsed that note in 2013, and it would have been impossible, she would have had to have endorsed it while she was an officer. So he's admitting, the witness is admitting that this is that not only did Chase put it on there in 13, but it would have been an impossibility for them or for Lita Hutchinson to have done it. He's admitting it's a forgery. And yet yet the judge stretches it.
0: Right, which brings to mind a a cliche of sorts that these trials don't get disposed of until the servicer, until the uh, purported uh, lender, until the purported securitized trust wins. And, of course, because this is bankruptcy court, the irony here is that superficially, on paper, bankruptcy could be an even better form for these types of cases because superficially the burden of proof shifts to the, the movement basically uh, in, in motions for relief from stay and in motions for summary judgment within bankruptcy, you know, court and practice. So it's these nominal securitized trusts that, will show up as the party in interest, supposedly possessing the note. And that they, that they, that they don't even have to do that in any sense of the word. And that they have this kind of a train wreck of antecedents related to this particular note, clearly demonstrating that there's fraud all over this. The court still signs off on it. I mean, it's, It's breathtaking. If it wasn't a foreclosure case, it would be shocking. Because it's a foreclosure case, it's banal. I hate to say that, uh, but I'm dealing with the reality of of, of so often how these cases are decided. You know, we've got several other topics we we want to address during this show. And those relate to three separate areas, one uh, FOIA request. We've, we've talked about this topic a number of times in the last several months. We've had Eric Mains on to discuss these FOIA requests at least a couple of times, possibly several. I actually recommend that uh, listeners go to the Blog Talk Radio blog, and you can probably do a search to find uh, when Eric Mains was on. I have I have another idea that um, I'm going to confer with uh, some of Neil's people and see if we can put out a blog posting about when Eric was on. It's very critical that people use the roadmap that Eric provided for doing a FOIA request. He provided enough details in his presentations on this show for someone to go back and access that show online, and then put this into place. The reason I, I emphasize this now is, FOIA request will not be available to be made after December thirty first. There's a there's a hard deadline of January first, two thousand eighteen. And so I do encourage listeners to look into that, and and just follow up, uh, communicate with the blog. Or uh, people can send me emails as well. My email address is on the blog, so that we can follow up to see what other foyer, foyer requests we can get forward before the deadline. Now, another area that is very uh, time limited has to do with the California Homeowner Bill of Rights. Now, this is this is going to expire in december 31st as well so we're talking not much more than a month from now now with the california homeowner bill of rights if borrowers in california or their california property if they put in a request for some sort of loan workout loan modification review and they put in that request before or on December 31st, 2017, the entirety of that request hypothetically hypothetically, needs to be considered under the, under the ending law. However, I can guarantee you one of the defenses on the other side is going to be, well, you may have put in your request on December 30th, December 29th, whenever, late December, However, we're not acknowledging that that the Homeowner Bill of Rights applies. Our take, take, again, I'm in the voice of the lenders here, the servicers fielding these requests. I, I anticipate their take being you would have had to have been formally under review in December for the Homeowner Bill of Rights to still apply, whatever decision would be made in 2018 about your particular submission. So as a cautionary principle, and again, I've said this many times, I'm not giving legal advice, it's not legal advice. This show discusses topics from a variety of points of view. And if you wanna pursue the absolute framework details on something, you need to consult with a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction. That being said, I can see the general way that this plays out happening in such a way that unless you're under formal review in December of 2017, I can see a challenge from the other side. So the short of that is for those who have sale dates, for those who have ongoing issues, even if you're in litigation in some cases, though for those in litigation, you need to consult with your attorney's, it may make sense to do a loan modification review while you still have the benefit of the California Homeowner Bill of Rights. The bottom line, unless you take advantage of it now, literally in the month of December, and get your docs in sooner rather than later in December, then the the benefit of the Homeowner Bill of Rights will simply be gone. I think it will be a given that any new submission after January 1st will be treated as not applying. Now, if you get a denial, let's say in mid-late December, if you appeal that denial, particularly if you appeal it in December, I think you would still be under the 2017 you know, deadline, meaning the homeowner billing rights would still apply to your situation. If it happens that you you submitted your documents a month ago and you don't get a denial, if you get a denial, let's say early January, Likewise, I think you can appeal that, and I think even with the appeal being in January, because you submitted your doc- documents and they were under review in December, I think the home and rights would still apply to your situation as well. So again, there's several different scenarios in terms of how this will play out. Uh, talk to a qualified legal practitioner, an attorney licensed in your state, and in this case, we're talking California, because this is where the applies uh to glean further details uh Bill, do you have any thoughts on this whole homeowner bill and rights situation, and how it's essentially been deep six, even though there are a lot of policies in California that support those who are kind of you know continually beaten down by big business and, and multinational corporations, and yet I hear only crickets uh, about this situation. And there's no movement at all that I see to to reauthorize this. And if it were were to be reauthorized, I believe the the impetus for that would have already gone forward. Do you have any thoughts on this uh, seeming uh, disregard for homeowners in California?
1: Well. Um... I'll comment on that one in one sec. I just want to make one real quick comment on the uh FOIA request uh deadline coming sure. up. Um and on Eric Maines um before I forget the responses that we're seeing coming back are obviously um, quite limited uh... out of california specifically a lot of a lot of folks in california thanks for uh, sending those in and, and sending over the information to me It all seems to be pretty uniform but one thing uh... that that i'm looking at uh... in the response from california is that they've been sitting on approximately thirty five million dollars it's not a huge sum of money but that's what that was put into the coffers by lps uh, that was intended for the uh, AG's office in the state of California to use that money to uh, to assist homeowners and uh, to date not one penny has been spent um, uh, with any sort of homeowner relief out of that account it's just been sitting idle now going into almost year five. Um, also uh, I continue to see on a, on a regular basis, just had a case this uh, week where, uh, on two, two different cases actually, uh, where the assignments coming in are still uh, coming out of that genre, that era where LPS stipulated as to these documents being fraudulent from that 08 to 2010 period. I'm still seeing LPS default solution documents assignments, uh, bogus ones coming in. From that era, that are still being utilized and and uh, not being mitigated by LPS or Black Knight or whomever. So, um, you've got to put some pressure on and um, at least jar loose that 35 million in some ways to uh, get it out there to the homeowners to help them. Um, now going back to your H I mean, it's going to expire obviously, and I'm I'm just bracing myself as all uh, consumers in California should be. I, I'm, I'm anticipating that. You know, the floodgates are going to open up wide again on some very uh, terrible and reckless behavior, and um, against homeowners in these foreclosure situations, I think it's going to, we're going to revert back to some, uh, you know, as if it hasn't been completely unscrupulous and and terrible already, but it's it's going to go revert right back to the same old uh, problems ten times worse. Uh, coming up just around the bend. I can foresee it right now. And and the reason simple. It's a profitable business model, and no one's gone to jail. So um, they're free to do whatever they want, and now this is going to give them a green light.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, that's the way you put it is precisely the right focus, in my opinion. Um, it's been a successful business model for them, notwithstanding that the government has given them certain sweeteners to Try to modify loans under different programs, including HAMP. Ultimately, those sweeteners have not been nearly enough. They've not been nearly robust enough. So they revert to the defaults and move for foreclosure because most incentives still lie in that area. And as you said, because there's no real accountability, even when there's massive wrongdoing on their side, even when, the, remember, the wrongdoing in, on their side, particularly in this area related to the California Homeowner Bill of Rights, I mean, there have been significant settlements of a global scope against a number of the servicers in this area, just as there have been national settlements uh, related to uh, dual tracking types of violations where somebody's under loan mod review of some kind, whatever state they're in, and at exactly the same time, the servicers moving forward for foreclosure. And the, the California homeowner bill Rights, among other things, was meant to address and has addressed to some extent the dual tracking aspect. And I have seen in my own practice that there's already movement from servicers to to go back to to even less favorable terms for, for homeowners, to even more kind of abusive tactics, behavior, duplicity, uh, not not negotiating in good faith on any potential resolution so that is becoming an issue i'm seeing that already now the final piece that uh, i thought it was important to discuss today relates to the cfpb and that's the consumer financial protection bureau now for a lot of listeners who follow the news they will have seen that the current administration is is, is, is seeking, apparently, to kind of orchestrate a, a complete defanging of the Bureau. And while I think, you know, I'm not going to spend significant time on this show or otherwise discussing the, you know the, the, the executive prerogative to appoint heads of these types of committees, as much as I appreciate efforts to do an end run around the administration's uh activities here you know from a, from an executive power point of view it's it's a pretty clear argument to say that the executive meaning the president controls the directorship of these of these of these bureaus of these departments including the cfpb at the same time none of us should celebrate that fact, and none of us should should stand behind what, what looks like it will be coming, and that is it looks like the CFPB is going to be completely defanged when it comes to handling mortgage issues. I see a scenario possibly where the department might even be dissolved. For that, I think it would need legislative approval. I'm not sure if that's going to get a sign-off as weak as the legislature nationally. I mean, remember, the California legislature has been overwhelmingly Democrat for years, and yet they still won't reauthorize the, the, the California Homeowner Bill of Rights. So I don't know that, that people should take, um, you know, kind of, kind of a thought that if Democrats took back control of Congress, the CFPB would all of a sudden be a robust institution again and that it will avoid what it's facing now. However, I think dissolving the CFPB is going to be a tall, tall order. And at least at the present, I don't see that happening. Time will tell. I do see, though, it being defanged, And that's another, you know, significant tool. It's 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 one of several tools. It's one of many if you add them all up borrowers have been able to use for the last several years. And while it, it, it's, not a, it's not a paper tiger, it's not a tiger either. It's probably more of a paper tiger than a tiger, to be truthful. However, it has had real influence, and, and it, is, it, it, is, it, it has a complaint process such that servicers have really had to address their presence and their arguments when they notify them about a consumer complaint. So it has had a real impact. It has helped create some more leverage for borrowers. And now it looks like very much that's going to be taken away. And while I don't, uh, well, what I do and what I mean to say about that whole situation is it's important for our listeners to know that this is what's going on. That whether they follow the news or not, particularly if they do follow the news, it really does look like this is where the CFPB is going, and I don't see them being an effective enforcement mechanism And mortgages in 2018. I hope I'm wrong about that. I hope that there's enough bureaucratic presence within the CFPB to thwart what will be coming from the executive once the new directorship is completely established. Um, So we'll have to see how that goes. I think people should continue to use the CFPB as one tool of several tools in this area. And we'll just have to see how that plays out. Uh, Bill, thank you very much for being on with me today. My pleasure. And to our listeners, Neil will be back next week. And I, will of course, will continue to, to do my West Coast show, and I will be on with Neil as well. Uh, so have a good day, everyone.